What is common amongst all human civilizations of the past? What trait was shared by the Incans, the Aztecs, the Romans, the Persians? What about the Greeks, the Mongols, the Mayans, the Egyptians, the Danubians, and the Mesopotamians? And what of the great empires in our history? The British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Brazilian Empire, the Empire of Japan, the Ming Dynasty, the Ottoman Empire, the Dutch Empire, or any of the myriad others. What was common to all of those civilizations? Well, time is not the common factor, as these civilizations have spanned history. And geographic locations are not the common factor, as they span the globe. Culture and race are not common factors, as the list of failed civilizations includes virtually all known cultures and races. The most obvious commonality amongst them is simply the fact that each and every one of them is gone now. Each of them rose and grew for a time before becoming more and more unstable until they, each one of them, eventually fell. But why? And is our civilization, the U.S., destined for the same disastrous end? Well, that's what we're going to discover next. Hey, I'm Scotty, and welcome to the Rational Apprentice Podcast, where we discuss solutions to humanity's problems derived from the application of the scientific method. We also discuss and practice things like logic and logical argumentation, reasoning and evidence, the unknown, forgotten, or underappreciated scientists and philosophers in our history, and of course, the mind of a murder case of the week. History as a subject, as a study, is subjective. The history books that we use in schools are interpretations of events that most often fail to give objective evidence or context for the conclusions they offer. They tell a story, and these stories are subject to the biases and the worldview of the authors. For example, what is the accepted interpretation of Abraham Lincoln as a person, as taught in American schools? Lincoln is lauded as a great constitutionalist, an advocate for democracy. Yet, the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. has this personification of freedom, perched majestically upon a throne. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. Lincoln is most often referred to as the great emancipator. Yet there are mountains of empirical evidence, documents, and personal accounts that show that in both his actions and his words, he was very much the opposite of that rosy portrait. Now, it doesn't take an intellectual giant to conclude that something is wrong with the accepted view of Lincoln. And this is hardly the only example. I'm sure that you can think of at least a few right off the top of your head. So if we can admit that history, as accepted, is unreliable at best and outright false at worst, we have to conclude that as a whole, history is a relative view of past events. The Lincoln that we were taught about in schools is a caricature, the view of the authors. But for us, for volitional scientists, that isn't good enough. We don't deal in relatives, we deal in absolutes. So let's look through the tube using the scientific method as our intellectual tool and see what we can see. Now, there are two general reasons for why all civilizations are unstable and fail. 
both of which we'll be talking about over the next few episodes. Today, let's tackle the first. The first is a failure in semantics. This is something we've discussed before a few times. We have failed to define our terms in a precise way, and thus our goals as a unified civilization have been vague, and our means of achieving or maintaining them have been equally vague. For example, prior to listening to this podcast, did you have a precise definition of the terms liberty and freedom? Liberty, the individual condition that exists when that individual has full 100% control over their property. And freedom, the societal condition that exists when each and every individual has full 100% control over their property. In other words, when every individual has liberty. Now, these two terms are mentioned over and over again in just about every founding document, every patriotic song, and every mantra throughout American history. But before the rational apprentice, could you specify what they meant or how they were different? America, that bastion of freedom with liberty and justice for all, what does that mean? And does it mean the same thing to everyone? Now, as we've discussed numerous times before, no, it doesn't, because we as a civilization have failed to define those words in a precise way. Virtually every problem that has ever come up in this country has its roots in alternate interpretations of the most important words to us. And this began all the way at the start of the country, the words used in the Declaration and the Constitution. Now, I will get into much more detail about the Declaration of Independence in future episodes, the most important and misunderstood social document ever written. But for today, let's concentrate on the Constitution. One of the largest failures of the American Constitution is that it was unfinished. It was and is missing the entire last section, that is the glossary of terms, a vital section that should have been included for a sole purpose, to make absolutely sure that the concepts it contained could not be misinterpreted and taken out of context. Well, but maybe they didn't think that the words were vague or would change meaning over time. That can't be true. The constitutional conventions that occurred for years after the drafting of the Constitution and the debates and fights between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists over its ratification were entirely over the fact that much of the wording was vague and could be stretched out of context. The Federalists were all for the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalists were very afraid that the Constitution failed to protect individual rights and would create the same despotism that they had just fought so hard to remove. Well, as we can see, they weren't wrong. The agreement that a Bill of Individual Rights would be drafted as amendments to the main document was what allowed the final ratification to occur. But unfortunately, the Bill of Rights included the same problems of semantics as the main document, and likewise included no glossary of terms to rectify the problem. Now, I'm going to say this straight out. The plain fact that there is a Supreme Court 
an entire third branch of government outlined in the Constitution, created for and solely dedicated to the interpretation of the Constitution, is in itself an admission of failure. What happened to the constitutional rule that the federal government was limited to only those tasks specifically enumerated in the document? Of all the things that the federal government is involved in today, and that is every aspect of every single thing that goes on in the U.S., what percentage of those things are specifically enumerated in the Constitution? 50%? 25%? 10 5 Surely not 1%. Each and every one of the amendments added in the Bill of Rights has been interpreted ad nauseum until they are in the state they are today. I have stated this before too. The first, the second, the third, yes, even the third, the fourth, fifth, sixth, all the way down through the Tenth Amendment. Each has been interpreted and twisted such that they can and have been used for the exact opposite of their intended purpose. All because of this lack of precision semantics. Now, how do I know this? And are you going to take my word for it? No, of course you're not. That's not good enough. So let's look at some evidence. Let's take a seemingly innocuous statement in the Constitution. For example, what is the meaning of the words general welfare? This has very often been called the general welfare clause. Now, most people think that these words, uh, general welfare, can only be found in the preamble. And as it's not in the body of the document, it's not all that big of a deal. But that's not true. The general welfare clause is not only in the preamble, it's also in the taxation and spending clause, right smack in the middle of the most dangerous portion of the entire document. So let's take a closer look at these two words, general welfare, and see what we can see. Quote, a general welfare clause, according to that bastion of truth, Wikipedia, is a section that appears in many constitutions and some charters and statutes that allows the government body, empowered by the document, to enact laws to promote the general welfare of the people, which is sometimes worded as the public welfare. In some countries, it has been used as a basis for legislation promoting the health, safety, morals, and well-being of the people governed by it, unquote. Well, that tells us what the clause is, but it does not define what general welfare means. It does, by substituting the word public for general, infer that general means or includes the citizenry of the country. But what about the word welfare? Now, the word welfare is a combination of two words. Well, meaning in a satisfactory manner, and fair, meaning to go along, to make your way, to travel. You might have heard another form of these same two words, fare thee well or farewell. In other words, have a good trip. So, welfare, from its first usage around 1300 AD until around 1904, meant to get along or to go along in a satisfactory manner. And the words to promote the general welfare, as stated in the preamble, meant to promote the citizenry of the United States to get along in a satisfactory manner. In other words, unhampered. It wasn't until 1904 
that the meaning of the word welfare changed dramatically to mean an organized effort to provide for maintenance of members of a group. And from that point, it took but 14 short years for the first instance of the term welfare state to appear in common usage. But let's return to what I read in Wikipedia. It specifies that the clause is used as a basis for legislation, laws, promoting health, safety, morals, and well-being. But what is the definition of health? What is the definition of safety? Well, we don't know. That's not specified. And how much health and safety are we talking about? 100% health? Maybe 100% safety? Every time you step out your front door, you take the risk of being bitten by a dog, run over by a car. You could eat or drink something that makes you ill. Should we ban everything? And if not, what constitutes acceptable health and safety and what doesn't? And what happens if these two things are in conflict with one another? If we take health at its most basic, life itself, then which do we prioritize, life or safety? In other words, should the state be handing out millions of quote-unquote safe drug use kits? Should the state be restricting homeless people access to low-cost housing because the dwellings have not been certified up to code or quote-unquote safe? And then there's moral. But what is moral? Is that specified? In volitional science, we do have a precise definition of the word. Moral is any action, belief, idea, or innovation that is preferred by at least one person, but does not interfere with the property of another. But does the Constitution have an equally precise definition? Well, it's not specified, so no. And what if moral conflicts with health? Lockdowns, mandatory injections, masks, censorship, and school closures all come to mind. And what exactly is well-being? According to what metric are we determining this? Is it mental well-being or is it physical well-being? What if it's both? Do you see the problem? Not only is this president's idea of what is healthy, what is safe, and what is moral different from that president's view of those things, not only can views on each change completely by 180 degrees every four years, but they are deciding for you what is healthy, safe, and moral. And none of those tasks are enumerated in the Constitution. The Taxing and Spending Clause states in part, The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts, and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Now, the word welfare here is a link, so let's take a look at that. Welfare, or well-being, synonyms they're asserting. Also known as wellness, prudential value or quality of life, refers to what is intrinsically valuable relative to someone. So the well-being of a person is what is ultimately good for this person. What is in the self-interest of this person. The term subjective well-being denotes how people experience and evaluate their lives, usually measured in relation to self-reported well-being. Okay, this is a relative by definition. These are not scientific terms. And because they are not scientific, absolute 
terms, they can be twisted to mean absolutely anything. But surely the government wouldn't do that. Well, let's look a bit further and see. Now, I am not going to sit here and read the Federalist Papers to you. We'd be here for days, so you'll have to look those up on your own. But the initial debate over the General Welfare Clause was between Madison and Hamilton. Madison felt that the clause was vague and overarching, and that unless tied specifically to the enumerated powers of the government, as specified in the enumerated powers section of the Constitution, the clause would, and I quote, amount to an unlimited commission to exercise every power which may be alleged to be necessary for the common defense or general welfare. Had no other enumeration or definition of the powers of Congress been found in the Constitution, then the general expression just cited, and here he's talking about the taxation and spending clause itself, the authors of the objection might have had some color for it though it would have been difficult to find a reason for so awkward a form of describing an authority to legislate in all possible cases. Unquote. Hamilton, of course, was on the other side of the debate. Wikipedia states, Alexander Hamilton, only after the Constitution had been ratified, argued for a broad interpretation which viewed spending as an enumerated power Congress could exercise independently to benefit the general welfare, such as to assist national needs in agriculture or education. By the way, these are examples, not enumerations. Provided that the spending is general in nature, general not defined, and does not favor any specific section of the country over any other. So, how did that turn out? Well, let's keep reading from Wikipedia and see. Prior to 1936, the United States Supreme Court had imposed a narrow interpretation of the clause, as demonstrated by the holding in Bailey v. Drexel Furniture Company. Dot, dot, dot. This narrow view was later overturned in United States v. Butler. There, the court agreed with Associate Justice Joseph Story's construction in Story's 1833 Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. Dot, dot, dot. Consequently, the Supreme Court held the power to tax and spend is an independent power and that the General Welfare Clause gives the Congress power it might not derive anywhere else. However, the court did limit the power to spending for matters affected only by the national welfare, not defined. Then, the Supreme Court interpreted the clause even more expansively, disavowing almost entirely any role for judicial review of congressional spending policies, thereby conferring upon Congress a plenary power to impose taxes and to spend money for the general welfare, still not defined subject almost entirely to Congress's own discretion. Even more recently in South Dakota v. Dole, this is 1987 we're talking about now, the court held Congress possessed power to indirectly influence the states into adopting national standards by withholding, to a limited extent, federal funds. Well, there goes your Tenth Amendment, gone. And what does to a limited extent, mean. Because we are now $32 trillion in debt. And that does not cover the over $100 trillion of unfunded liabilities. Two words 
general welfare. That's all it took. Two imprecise words have reduced the entire document, the entire Constitution, to a vague, living, breathing waste of time. <laughs> Next week, we'll continue with this, discussing the second common failure that has caused all prior civilizations to fail. And we'll see how our modern society stacks up there, too. All right, everyone, that'll do it for today. Let me remind you that in order to get the weekly Mind Over Murder case notes, you'll need to sign up for the weekly Substack newsletter. In addition to the Mind Over Murder case notes, we'll have studies, practices, courses, and bonus materials coming out in the near future, and I know you're going to want to get a hold of those when they come out. So head on over to therationalapprentice.substack.com to sign up for free right now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.